beer selection here. Oh, yeah. Okay, so this is what we're drinking tonight. There's three Floyds. Three Floyds. But Tim showed up with this 12-pack from Mad Tree, which is a local brewery. And this stuff is called Legendary Lager. But then if you look at this side of the box, it has a lady with a sack with Appalachian Trail Mount Katahdin. That's obviously Grandma Gatewood, for those that are familiar. And then it says on top, Emma Grandma Gatewood, the men told her to go home, that the Appalachian Trail was no place for a woman her age. So Grandma Gatewood walked from Georgia to Maine three times at age 67, 69, and 73, just to prove them all wrong, <laughs> which I don't think is true. <laughs> I don't think she just did it to prove them wrong. Uh, but she did prove some people wrong. She had her own motivations. <laughs> but we'll uh, we'll see if we get to that beer when we're done with this one. All right. You got a bottle opener here? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So this um, is 7.5%. I did have a 15.9 at home for us one day. So uh, For a future date to yeah. be determined. For a future. When you're feeling adventurous. Tim is my... Uh, a la Grandma Gatewood. My purveyor of high alcohol beers <laughs> over the years um so thanks for coming on cheers it's coffee mm-hmm. what do you think i think it's good have you ever had a beer you don't like yeah I'm, I'm not into the ipas okay i knew that have you ever had a dark beer you don't like no Okay. <laughs> that's more what I was going on. So if I buy a dark beer for you, you're going to yeah. be like, that's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. I think the highest ABV I ever had was Party Source had a 19% once. Holy crap. And I was drinking that with Scott. You know, Scott, he's um, the cyclist and he lost yeah. you know, one arm. Yeah. And, yeah. and he's like a champion cyclist guy, off road mm-hmm. kind of guy. He and I were drinking these, the highest ABVs down there. And we drank like four that were in the 15 range. And then we said, we got to drink the 19. So we decided what we would do is chug it and then drive home as fast as we could. <laughs> because, <laughs> because we were only two blocks from home and we were drinking. It's got to be more dangerous to drive home <laughs> fast at that point when you're two blocks away. Well, we were trying to hit it before it hit our bloodstream, yeah, that. you know. That's, that was our, that's, that's smart. That was our, <laughs> that was our thinking at that point of the night. Um, so do you know at what point, what makes a beer and not, um, like wine or can you have a hot, can, is there a max ABV? That is a question for, for a Scott. Beer? I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't think so. I mean, wines are what? Like, 13 ordinary wines and are. beers are, they can be three to 15 mm-hmm. or higher. Yeah, all right. All right, well, while we're lighting these cigars, I'm going to try and roll the intro here. You're listening to the Fight for Together podcast. All right. Who did the voiceover for that? Who? I think that was Flea. And Seven uh, made the little musical riff. Nice. Um, Well... I'm glad to have you on the show, Tim. I've been wanting to do this for years. And it's one of those things, you know how you're just like, I'm going to do this. Someday the timing's going to be perfect. 
uh, and you have that moment, and then fucking three years later, you're like, wait, I'm not sure if that moment's ever actually going to come. <laughs> yeah. And I should have just done it like a long time ago, but here we are. And uh, for those that don't know, Tim's a neighbor of mine and a friend that uh, actually helped like proofread or provide feedback. Proofread is a shallow way of putting it, but providing feedback on early versions of my book, 2000 Miles Together, actually both, both my books, um, and even on Cammy's album and stuff like that. Yeah, for our Bellevue Monday morning creative, that was fun. Yeah. And um, if you can, you're going to have to scoot a little closer to the mic, I think. Um, don't, so if you get ash or if you light on fire. It's not going to be the first time. That's the cost of doing business around here. <laughs> we we, um, we prioritize good audio quality and cigar smoking. So, um, And uh, you're writing your own book that I've had the pleasure of reading, which we're not going to get into a ton because it's not done. But yeah. um, it's probably like the topic of that book about of why I wanted to have you on the podcast. Because uh, we've been conversing about these topics of, uh, shit, I don't even, it's hard to summarize, but disenfranchised uh, people groups that you have worked with professionally now for decades. Yeah. Okay. And I've just found it so fascinating as we've been doing the vlog and the writing and the social media stuff just how much overlap we have with two pretty different topics like in a way like our focus is like family and kids and yours is on people with disabilities but um so many like overlapping themes um i mean if you could like change a few words it's like we're writing about the same thing as what it feels like oftentimes that's a feeling i've gotten with you the types of rants that you have we end up in similar places often yeah yeah so I don't know. I just want to get you talking about what you've learned, what you've seen, what you've done in this space uh, over the last couple decades. Because I think that's what, I don't know, that was what I found the most inspiring. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if, if you have a place to start, but where I would start is like, okay, 20, 20 years ago, Tim in his 20s starts getting interested in this field and he believes and he sees and feels what well i don't know if it was me getting interested it was me partying too much in college and needing a summer job that took me out of town away from that <laughs> and yeah. i ended up so you're in rehab <laughs> yeah, basically and I, I ended up uh finding a, a job for a summer camp out in california right in santa cruz and of course that sounds like for growing up in Kentucky your whole life, Santa Cruz sounds like Dude. the most amazing place you <laughs> that ever is want true. to go. It's like they make movies. Yeah, <laughs> they do. So uh, I went out there and um, worked at this camp for people with disabilities, and um, I just loved it. And um, it it was surprising to me um, how disorienting it was on the first day when I'm surrounded by 60 people who are um, 
ready to be uh, friends, hang out, talk <laughs> about anything. And, and, um, and it took me a long time to really understand a lot of the themes in my book. But what I can tell you is that I was drawn to it. First, for selfish reasons that I wasn't aware of at the time. But then later on, for um, reasons that were um, a reaction to that almost. So so can you walk me through um, people with disabilities? Sure. When we say that, paint me a picture for what is this camp? Like, what are, are these people in wheelchairs? Are these people, um, what, with brain injuries or like what do you see like what's the yes so all of it really um the camp was was divided up with people with what they called physical disabilities so people used wheelchairs or had cerebral palsy or um or something like that and then there were people with developmental disabilities like down syndrome or autism or something so, they, so shit, that's a big category yeah i mean it's like it's someone who could have got ran over by a tractor yeah and someone who is born yeah with half a brain yeah yeah or somebody that had right some sort of difference of the way that their mind works or something and and they all get lumped in the same summer camp which is it's like saying all white people every exactly (laughs) right or or whatever you want to say all all those people are like each other okay yeah so that was um that was not a surprise to me because that's the way the world worked (laughs) <laughs> and I, I just I just show up and all these people with disabilities are just lumped together under the category of camper, and I was there to take care of them. Now, what did you like about it? You said part of it was selfish. How do you get, what's fun about that for you? Well, for me, it was getting high fives, getting hugs. Um, it was having letters from home, grandma telling me that she thought I was doing God's work. So affirmation. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, not just from the people with disabilities themselves who were uh, ready to accept and know me and, and be friendly with me and care about me, but also from the people that observed me doing that work. So that was where I started. So I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily interested in it as more as I think I was addicted to that feeling. <laughs> Just addicted to the affirmation? Yeah, I think so. Was there something else, though? Like There's money, right? You get a salary, too. From a summer camp? <laughs> I mean, much. that must have been... $125 a week. Yeah, so I doubt that's the huge motivating factor. But I don't know. In knowing you, I've sensed something in you where you, you love minority opinions. Not all of them. But I mean... Like, if there's going to be a the big corporation with power, the little guy, you root for the little guy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Is Was that a factor? It probably was when I first went out there. I, I remember when I took the job, I had two options that the guidance counselor at college gave me. One was that or teaching rich kids how to yacht up east. Those were your two options? Yeah, she gave me two brochures, and one was to go at this camp for people with disabilities in California or to go up east and work on you know rich kids summer camp and i was like I'm not going to that place so i wanted did nothing to do with that did any part of you think of that 
no, I didn't want anything to do with that. I was like, let's go to California. See, there you go. And the, That's interesting. The underdogs, right? So I was I was always a fan of the underdogs. I just didn't quite know how much of underdogs they were. So tell me about that. What how are they underdogs? I mean, what did you what did you learn? Well, over the years, like I came back here to Cincinnati and got a job working with people with disabilities and kind of grew my career from that because I was good at it and it was fun and um, and I got a lot of meaning out of it. But as I grew more and more successful in my career, I mean, became the director of an organization that was billing a million bucks a year to the, to the state Medicaid system. And uh, we raised money for a brand new building, super successful by every metric that you want to use. Um, but I started to really explore the future of what inclusion of people with disabilities looked like. And I thought it was more of like me, you know, doing my thing. And what I kind of came to discover was it was the opposite of that. <laughs> so what do you mean more of your thing? Like, what were you doing? Can you give me an example? Yeah, I was doing strategic plans to try to figure out how to scale my business all over the country. And your uh, disability, it's like... Nonprofit. Daycare, you know, right? Or... Basically, yeah. We would take people on outings to baseball games and movies and out to eat. And we'd take groups of people and entertain them during the day while their parents worked you know they do art classes and cooking classes and stuff like that so that's an interesting angle that i learned from you just from talking over the years and i think especially from the book that you wrote um <clears throat> which i read the rough draft of was you know there's these organizations that are nonprofits, mm -hmm. and they you know if you read the brochure you'd be like this is amazing that they're doing god's work here helping people but the way you saw it as CEO, what is that yeah. what you were? Okay. Mm -hmm. It was, it was like basically a business. Yeah. It's like the more people you fill, the more hours you get, the yep. more you can charge the state, yep. the more tax dollars you get and the more you can grow and expand. And it's it functioned very similar to if you're selling cans of Coke or filling up blackjack table seats or anything else. Yeah. Yeah. People with disabilities became my product. And the more that I sold a good story, the more money everybody made. Um, and, and we weren't hurting anybody, right? We were just not necessarily thinking of them in their fullest human capacity. <laughs> like they could live a life like the rest of us. Hanging what do you mean by that? Well, I mean that um, I noticed that I was part of a pattern um, that was lumping people with disabilities, just like the camp I worked at, indiscriminately to be taken care of by a bunch of staff that were in and out of their lives. And what I heard, especially from parents and especially from moms, <laughs> was um, who's going to be in my kid's life when I'm not there? And so that was like the super disturbing question to me um, that... I didn't have an answer for, and I, I thought, well, my work is here, you know, we're, we're here, but really, we're just hiring people, 
that are doing some pretty good work or some mediocre work or even some bad work sometimes, but then they're gone within two or three years. And this person gets a new person to come in and hang out with them, you know, but they're still surrounded by other people with disabilities and other social workers constantly. And that wasn't just at my business. That was in every part of their life where they played sports and where they went to school and where they lived and where they worked. Man. And that was something I, I picked up from in your book, which was like, I mean, it's hard. It's so hard for me to wrap my mind around because I'm just like not in that world, but these are like grown ass adults that are, that have a disability, but they maybe can't get a driver's license or can't hold a job or some shit like that. Mm-hmm. And therefore they, some loving family member will basically submit them to your system or apply or get however it works. And then it seems like it's a service that's being provided to this person. But in a way it's kind of like golden handcuffs because they basically get a chaperone. Like imagine, so the, the way you pan this picture in this book, one of them was about this guy's birthday. Yeah. And you took him out to someplace he wanted to eat for his birthday. And this is like a 20-year-old person. Oh, he was 50. 50. Okay, there you go. He's a 50-year-old <laughs> human guy, right? Yep. And he wants to go somewhere for his birthday. You want to tell the story? Yeah, sure. I mean, he, he and I had a birthday that was one day apart. And uh, he was exactly 30 years older than I was. And so we would always go out for our birthday in one year. I took him out and I said, where do you want to go? He says, I want to go to KFC. And this guy has Down syndrome, okay? So he lives in a group home with about 11 other people with disabilities, and he has for most of his life. So I pick him up. He says, and, a, he, and a group home, just to clarify, is like, I mean, it's like there's a lot of rules there. Totally, yeah. There's like, I don't know, anywhere from maybe there's five rooms where people double up or maybe they each have their own room, but then there's staff that just make sure that nobody leaves or nobody breaks any rules. So it's like curfew. Yeah. So this is like 50 year olds with curfew. Yeah. They all share a van. They all share a grocery trip, you know, like everything's a compromise, right? Everything's designed to make the, the 11 or 12 people there mostly happy. Right. Yeah, with like lowest common denominator shit. Exactly. So where do you want to go tonight? Well, everybody's cool with McDonald's, you know. <laughs> but anyway, this this guy, he says, I want to go to Kentucky Fried Chicken. And so I said, you got it, man, you know. And I was like, anywhere you want. But he, he chooses Kentucky Fried Order Chicken. Order whatever you want on the menu. Yeah. So we go, and it was a buffet style. And so. Oh, I just saw one of those, like a billboard. <laughs> yeah. And it looks so good, actually. <laughs> we went, and he comes back with a plate of just mashed potatoes whoa and it's piled this high and he just sits down he's like Mm-mm, i love mashed potatoes Dude, and i i, I love <laughs> i actually it's one of my guilty pleasures i love kfc KFC's mashed, mashed potatoes and, and their gravy. gravy is great too oh yeah my gosh i don't know if there's any like potatoes in it or whatever but just flakes or something it doesn't matter to me <laughs> It didn't matter to him either. <laughs> and I was cool with it because it's his birthday, yeah, right? Fuck yeah. And so um, he, he he ate the mashed potatoes. We had a great lunch. And I dropped him off at his group home. It was like an hour. You know, we were gone an hour. And um, I dropped him off at his group home. And I told this story to the staff. And I was just kind of like chuckling like, man, he really loves mashed potatoes, you know? <laughs> and I was like, this is cool, you know? everybody. Did he get anything else 
after that? I can't remember if he got anything else. I mean, that was like years ago, but he probably did, but it wasn't much, you know? It wasn't like, yeah. I mean, if you eat that many mashed potatoes, <laughs> fit anything else in. So he, he um, this, this group home worker, the staff just gets so mad. She's like, what? Look, Steve, she says, what are you doing? You know you can only have a quarter cup of mashed potatoes, you know? And you're going to break your diet. And she turns to me and she's like, what are you doing? You know, letting him, letting him break his diet. He's, he's got these health problems and he can't have this many mashed potatoes. And I, I was shocked. I was like, dude, everybody has a few extra mashed potatoes every now and again. I didn't know that mashed potatoes was going to like make somebody keel over right away, you know? And so, um, I was really struck by that because it was his birthday. Right. And, and on birthdays, it's like no holds barred right? You get to do whatever you want. Yeah. And the funny thing was, is that the next year... And this is someone, just to clarify, this is someone not who's like, he's asked as an accountability partner and entrusted to help partner with him on his health goals. Yeah. That's this is like that. a paid social worker yeah. that's basically protecting their own ass and trying to cover the rules. Yeah. She probably has to write down something like, you know, how, what he ate when he went out who he was with, how long he was gone. There's probably a whole log around that stuff. So um, that's how that system works, is you're, you're documenting everything. So she was covering her ass, not his. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and even, if, even if she was looking out for his best interest, which I'm sure she, she, she does well, it was this pressure to just immediately jump on a guy on his birthday that struck me, yeah. right? And the interesting thing for me was a year later, I asked him what he wanted to do on his birthday, and he said, I want to go to a Reds game. So we go out to this baseball game, and it was the ninth inning, and it was tied. And I called the, the group home, and I said, it's tied. He wants to stay for the extra inning, so we'll be, we'll be a little late. I mean, this is the difference between, say, 9.30 and 10.45 on a, on a week and night for a baseball game on his birthday. On his birthday. And we got home and hit a different staff this time is like i'm gonna call his guardian and i'm gonna tell what you've been doing taking him out too late this is breaking his curfew and and as i left that night i just can't forget like two different birthdays two different staff same place but different rules being broken right one is too many mashed potatoes one's staying out a little bit late on your birthday which I think, again, we all eat what we want on our birthday. We all stayed out a little, a little bit later on our birthday. But I think that's the injustice of things that I was noticing at that time, you know, how my life and his really diverged. So what do you make of that? Like, what, um, what's the crime? I mean, if you want to call it that, like, against... What's, what's, uh, what's the name you use in the book for this person? Uh, Dave. Dave. Okay. <laughs> you, you had to like scrub yeah, all the real names. Yeah. Um, what? I mean, obviously that's a pain in the ass. Yeah. But this is. I mean, you wrote a whole book about this, and you decided to put your job on the line numerous times to battle this, what you call injustice. If you had to label, like what? What's happening here? Well, though that's a pretty sm small example. So so. The one, the first thing I would say is what's happening here is that's one snippet of one day of his life, 
and what his he, birthday his birthday and and what we might consider the best day of the year for somebody right so imagine the best day of your year is being told what you can eat and how you could stay out and i would extrapolate that to then pay attention to where he spent the rest of his days right and 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 then i would extrapolate that to say it's not just him it's every one of the hundreds and thousands of people with disabilities that I've known in some way, shape, or form are in this pattern where other people control them, sometimes as part of a job, sometimes out of um, motivations like getting hugs and affirmation from other people, and sometimes feeling pressure to do the right thing and what they think ought to be the right thing. Now, won't people say maybe... Um... Dave's not qualified to make the decision for himself. Like, so we're helping him by regulating his bedtime and the foods he can eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that Dave needs help in a lot of ways that all of us need help. <laughs> um, making choices that other people might judge as wrong or bad for us. I mean, we're smoking cigars and drinking <laughs> beer, and we have done this for a long time. And this is not my first cigar for the day. No, and nobody's <laughs> ringing us by the scruff of the neck for doing it, you know? So yeah. I think I think for me it's what, again, in the, in the newest terms, it's a microaggression, you know? These little tiny ways that people get treated really badly over and over throughout their life. When you say microaggression, what do you mean? What I so mean you need to light your cigar. Yeah. Okay. What I mean is what I mean is when when you when people when you ask people what's it like to face injustice or regular discrimination. Or could we just say like not being treated well or fairly? Yes. Okay. They will often not have big elaborate stories of um, really vivid examples of racism or sexism or homophobia or anti-disability ableism, right? They they won't have these big examples where they were there was a there was they were abducted and and beat up or you know? no KKK. He no. gets to use the same drinking fountain, right? Like exactly. it looks like. And if you talk to most people, even these people that are telling them that he needs to be home at a certain time or that he can't eat mashed potatoes. They're like, oh, we love Dave. Like, Dave's great. They're, like, probably overtly kind. Very nice people. So, okay, so these this type of um, injustice is done, like, uh, beneath the surface. You have to look a little deeper. Mm-hmm. You have to pay attention to it happening on a regular basis in small ways. So that's what the microaggression means is that it just builds up. You know, you could have one tiny snowball – what matters is when they all kind of <laughs> make it into a big avalanche, right? Yeah. There's a made up of a bunch of snowflakes. Now where I am, um, I think one of the thing, the first things that really made me want to have you on the podcast was so hang on. I need to, um, this is my timer to reset the camera. Um, is I've thought so much, our view of parenting and children has changed so much over the years. And 
we used to have these like very firm biblical principles for why we parented. That's like what we believed. And the more some of those started to fall apart and I started to look at like what lied beneath them, like let's take it a simple one, like children obey your parents, which was very heavily emphasized for where we came from. There was this culture of like adults have the answers, kids are stupid and do not know the answers and need to be told what to do and need to be trained in wisdom and should be um, uh, seen and not heard and are basically like giant receptacles for what we adults have to give them. No one would say that like as overtly, most of it at least, but that was when I saw it play out, it was like kids very similar to what you said with the mashed potatoes. They didn't get to decide what to eat. They didn't get to decide what to wear. They didn't get to decide what to do with their day. We as adults kind of said, listen, we know what's best for you. Listen to us. And if they fought us, it was seen as rebellion. It was seen as disobedience. It was never seen as injustice. And you have these people, there was this like assumption that be, was made was like, just because you're smaller, you have less rights or less, you're less qualified to make decisions. And this was across the board. Like this wasn't just, like I said, I get it when it's like, okay, I'm not gonna let the kid drive the car. But when it comes to the buffet, should the kid be allowed to pick the mashed potatoes? And I used to fight those battles too and be like, no, I'm gonna, you're going to finish this because I said so. And it was kind of, it was like a little Stephen King prison-y feeling <laughs> where, you know, you have the guard that's just like, it's my way because I say so, like kind of a giant dick-wagging contest. But anyways, the same, the more I've heard you talk over the years, I saw these, and I would say microaggression or injustice done towards small people to follow some similar patterns to what you've seen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, don't, I, I mean, it's just authority. It's, it's this, um, this it, absolutely. I mean, I, we would write people up and, and suspend them from programs for having a behavior. At some point though, we kind of started to learn that behavior was just another form of communication. You know, it, it was just a way of saying, this is what I need. This is what I want. Give me an example of that. Well, for example, um, you know, it, I, I knew a guy who would, um, he would kind of start to hit his head, you know, when he heard a loud noise or something like that, you know, and, and people would try to do um aversive behavior plans with them. What I mean by that is every time he starts to lift his arms, they would um, push his arms down. Um, there's extreme versions where they'll put vinegar on people's tongues and stuff. This is like an uh, applied behavioral analysis or applied behavioral um, um, analysis. It, it's kind of a, a thing for people who are autistic, but it's really kind of like a form of violence, you know, like they get, they get taken, gum gets taken away or given depending on if they make eye contact and stuff like that. And, and really what we kind of came to understand was people that had what those people were calling behaviors were really just having an experience of trying to regulate their body and make their body work like everybody else's. So they're dealing with some sort of like, uh, uh, maybe like information overload. And they can't process it. The same. Well, way. they can. The way they process it might be through hitting themselves. Yeah. yeah. 
And we as society look at that and we say, one, that's bad behavior and needs to be corrected, which is a really fascinating approach towards any behavior, mm-hmm. I think, now. Mm-hmm. Um, have you heard of a IFS or internal family systems like uh-uh. therapy with Richard Schwartz? Man, that is my latest thing. Is that what Holy is what's the story crap, there? I love it. Okay, this the story in a nutshell. And if you want to, I'll send you some of this shit. But um, Richard Schwartz, who wrote this book called No Bad Parts, but his his uh, counseling modality is called IFS or Internal Family Systems, which is confusing as hell because it's not anything what it sounds like. Uh, anyways, he has an interview with Tim Ferriss that's really, really, in my opinion, worth listening to. I'll put the link in the stuff. But basically, the, the internal family system is saying that in our system, like my internal system, is a family of parts that is all working for one purpose. Mm. And if you don't understand one of the parts your best bet is to try and understand and listen to it. Otherwise, it will never stop doing whatever it is it's doing. Hmm. So he uses examples of people cutting themselves or people sabotaging relationships with other people. And people, or one example he uses is, you know, someone might be doing like public speaking and their throat might tighten up right before they public speak. And that they hate that. They're like, damn it, my throat is tight. This sucks. I wish my throat just didn't tighten up. And they just kind of like belittle that um, part of themselves that does that behavior. And his whole approach is to, he, it's really fascinating. He, like, he says like, sit down, pretend like that part of you that's constricting your breathing is sitting across the table from you. Invite it in the room and ask it, why do you do what you do? And there's always a story there. Yeah. It's like at some age, it was like unsafe to express yourself. Yeah. And so this part that constricted its throat would do that to save the person's goddamn life. And then, you know, shit gets out of hand and you grow older and you don't, you maybe don't need that part anymore, but that part is still functioning as if it's necessary for your survival. But until you listen to it and hear it out in a nonviolent way and kind of like tell you, tell it that you appreciate it and thank it and ask it if it has, you know, ask it questions and things like that, it will continue to persist. So anyways, yeah. I say all that to say like my my understanding of and and the the book title is no bad parts. Like everything that people do, they do for a reason. Yeah. So even someone hitting themselves, you could see that. And as a society, I know this with um, disabled people, you probably have way more interesting stories than I do. But with kids, you take a kid into a grocery store and they start screaming and I'm like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> like that's annoying as hell. Like if, whether it's my kid or someone else's, but what's going on inside the kid is like terror. They're crying out for help, you know, something that's very good and deserves to be listened to. But because they're using a different language than someone who's normal, we tend to write off. Yeah. And, and then uh, take it at another meta level higher, which is, you know, could the kid talk to the part of it the kid that is crying in the grocery store and then can you sit down and talk to the part of you that says would you please shut the fuck up yeah and then ask where that comes from and that would come from the shame of society yes right (laughs) so so that's what's been kind of interesting is in a way i i mean i think that folks with the label of disability essentially have to live with that 
in in a way that they can't hide if that makes sense the thing that uh that society wants to shame is is out <laughs> if that does that make sense yeah i mean it's You're, obvious yeah so so everybody gets to kind of like shun them um not invite them to the parties, um, send them to the special room <laughs> for school or for living or for why are start. they why are they shamed or shunned? Well, they operate differently, you know. Like, I mean, I mean, I know Crossroads, you know, for example, uh, one of your favorite topics. <laughs> That's the largest <laughs> local mega church in the area. They 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 have this volunteer program, and this was when we were first starting to really understand that a person with a disability could be, or or could be supported to just join in like everybody else. So uh, this guy, he has a disability. He wants to go volunteer with Crossroads, and um, he shows up with his dad and and our staff to support him to volunteer. And I get a call from their co- volunteer coordinator like uh, a couple of days later, and uh, she says, "Are you sending people with disabilities to volunteer without going through our special needs ministry?" And I was like, "No, but if if they do that." <laughs> that's fine. Right. You know, like she says, no, I mean, like we have a special needs ministry. They need to go through there, you know? And I was just struck by it because I said, well, can we get coffee? And we met over there for coffee and we talked and she was super understanding as I, I, I described it. I said, you know, some people are going to pace in your Bible study. Is that okay? You know, some people are going to, some people are going to have a seizure with their dad in the middle of the volunteer session. Is that okay? Because otherwise, we're just sending all those people to this special needs room where they don't get to participate. That's, that's the seizure room. Yeah, basically. I mean, the the disability room, and and you know when 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 you when you when we when we put it that way, <laughs> she says, "Oh, okay, okay." You know, and she kind of had a little bit of understanding around it, which was which was pretty cool. But the point being that. Um, I think she was worried that their experience would somehow embarrass her or the organization. It would turn other people off from volunteering. They would feel uh, obligated or put upon or something like that. Whereas really it's like, well, could you come to know this person? You know, Because again, that's, that's, that's part of this, the power of the dialogue you're suggesting, right? Because our status as individuals, and this is something I've heard you talk about, um, is based upon who we hang out with. Yeah. And one of the themes in your book is, like we live in a capitalistic society. Mm-hmm. Most of these people with disabilities, and I'd also say kids, can't make money. 97% unemployment rate for people with intellectual disabilities. So <laughs> if I'm at a party and I'm, the number one question I ask is, what do you do for work? Imagine if 97% of the people can't answer that question. Which is basically me <laughs> sizing you up. Yeah. And I'm like, should I respect this guy or not? Yeah. How much does he make? Right. You know, is he a janitor or is he like, does he have a 401k like me? Yeah. Which I don't think I have a 401k, but <laughs> <laughs> shit. I, I don't even know if you do either. Um, <laughs> but okay. So these people do not register. They're not valuable to society in that way. Which is, I think is a big deal. We're working to change that. Like a lot of people, that's a big effort is to try to figure out how to help a person with a disability get hired. 
one of the interesting things about that is is that the it's it's a little bit of a cynical move <laughs> so so essentially you know the story for people with disabilities at least in in my the story i was a part of was they get sent away to big buildings and and programs and and there are buildings and programs in Cincinnati where that there's hundreds of people with disabilities right every day of their life and uh, that's becoming uh, it's falling out of favor socially the big so, buildings yeah people are saying that's a violation of civil rights so basically like prisons right or yeah like adult imagine if we sent day, all women daydreams. to the building okay and they had to go stay there and not and they made less than minimum wage to stay there all day imagine we sent everybody like who's who is a color yeah or everybody who's of a certain faith or whatever right so it's it's a protected class and they're trying to change those laws but it's going to take a while because everybody's got a vested interest in people with disabilities being sent to those places what do you mean well you know my program that i started and then undid which was the hardest thing i ever did in my life that 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 program was designed to help cover parents so they had somebody to care for their kid while they worked it helped cover um the system's resources so tax dollars and donors resources it made sure that that was as, as affordable as possible and it helped um it helped the community feel like it was doing something by writing checks or volunteering but it asked every person with a disability in the place to essentially compromise their their lives right so they had to live in a certain setting <laughs> just my disabled building essentially and that's weird because you have this entire like i think that's what people don't see is you have this like building right and it might have a hundred disabled people coming there a week so on the offset it's like oh we're helping a hundred people but like the way the machine functions you're really helping like thousands of people feel good about themselves yeah like the people that work there is providing jobs. The people in the community who can say, yeah, we're a great community because all these people are taken care of and they can like check that off their list. Then you have the donors and these institutions that are using you guys basically as a tax write-off. Mm -hmm. So like it's tricky to, to ask the question, who's benefiting from this? Mm -hmm. Like, And all those people would point to the uh, probably the disabled folks and be like, yep, they're the primary benefactors. But when you look at how it functions, I feel this way about like almost like daycare centers or something like... Not that I'm against, like, is there a cat meowing? Probably. How many cats you got here these days? <laughs> I don't know. More than, we just had a baby kitten born, too. But there's this one that, that sounds like my cat, though, but it's going to have to wait. Um, not that I'm against people needing childcare, but I think we should be honest about who it's for. And a lot of times we send our kids to childcare or school or whatever, and we say, oh, it's for the kid's best interest. But really... We do it so that we can work mm -hmm. and we need to feel good about ourselves and feel like our kids educated. Yeah. And the teachers are benefiting, the taxpayers, the community. Everyone like kind of pats themselves on the back. So this machine is in full effect. And actually I think the kids are the the lowest on the benefactor list. Not to say they don't benefit at all, but why don't we just be honest and say this isn't for them? Yeah. Like this is for us to feel good about ourselves so we can go to work. We basically need a giant childcare system. I mean, we're, we're seeing this with the pandemic, right? Is, is, is everybody's realizing schools are kind of a child care system. That's what people are upset about. <laughs> they want their, they want their child care back. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that it's the same function as a nursing home. 
It's the oh, same. Wow. It's the same function as a prison, as a homeless shelter, as an addiction clinic. I mean, they're all the same pattern, which is let's take the people that are experiencing some trouble and might be a little bit make us uneasy <laughs> and let's send them there and then we'll hire some people to take care of them so we can all go about business as usual. Now, what I'm like really fascinated by is it feels like a victory for society. Like you get the crying baby in the grocery store and then you get the crying baby out of the grocery store. That feels like a win for everyone. Like it feels like, okay, this is a more comfortable, convenient place for us to all shop now. But when you take that to the nth degree, when you remove the inconvenient people in your life, what I found, and I wrote a whole damn book about this from the Appalachian Trail, is that, and I thought going on the trail that having the kids was going to be a liability and like, okay, everyone's going to have this experience, but the the single people that we're hiking at are obviously going to have a better experience than us, but we'll like just make do. But I finished the experience, the trail, believing that we had the best experience of anyone out there because I got to see it from a child's perspective time and time again. And their perspective was more refreshing, um, less, what's the word, um, uh, slanted or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know, but it was like fresh eyes. Yeah, It was more beautiful in a lot of ways than people who didn't have kids. And of course that's my experience, but, but this is like the thing that, um, I don't know, you said it in the very beginning about going to California. I've heard people say about going on mission trips or working with homeless people. They say the same thing again and again and again, which is I went on this trip to help people and the primary person that was helped was me. Like, so when we remove these undesirables that are a little bit more of a pain in the ass to understand and integrate early on kids and kids are the biggest pain in the ass in the beginning. I mean, you have your life, you're like partying, you like do whatever the fuck you want. You don't have to change anybody's diapers. You don't have to change any, you don't have to touch poop. (laughs) And then all of a sudden you like, your life revolves around uh, this other being in an uncontrollable way. And yeah, it's it's a difficult transition, but most people say it's the most rewarding experience they ever have in their life. And you can't remove the kid. I mean, we try maybe with uh, these fancier school-type daycare methods. But I guess my, my entire point in saying this is the real person that's missing out is not just the disabled person that's being removed. It's actually society itself. Mm-hmm. What have you seen with that? Well, that was part of our escape plan. So once I was kind of uh, aware of my contribution through my business to that pattern of exclusion, of segregation, really, um, I just kind of discovered and learned through a lot of help and (laughs) trial and error that the best way to really support a person was to zero in on who they were as a unique individual and then to figure out what gifts they had to offer the world, you know, um, what they might be interested in contributing to a, a more interesting, vibrant community, right? So we started to do these cool little projects where we helped uh, a person uh, with a disability start a spoken word night. Um, we helped uh, 
a guy with a disability brew beer with the guys from Mantry, right? And he still works there. That's uh, eight Is that years. This beer? Yeah, that's that beer. <laughs> and that's like eight, you know eight eight years going. He's been working there because he brewed beer with some guys and threw a party, right? Now, aren't they not just like I'm, I'm being devil's advocate a little bit, yeah. but I think it's like one of the most common ideas is aren't they just like doing him a favor all the time by like having the the you know slow guy around is that like i mean i'm sure that's that's an element of possibility but what's cool about madry is um they were really awesome partners from the get-go in that they we talked to them about how that that trap right so the the exploitation trap essentially we said look if, if you just showcase this guy um, because he has a disability, they're like, look, we hired people of all shapes and sizes. Right. You're gonna, you're gonna really dehumanize him. You're gonna, you're gonna like diminish his, his, his own personal dignity. And the founders um, were like, yeah, we get that. And so to this day, I've never seen his face on a Mad Tree billboard or on a T-shirt, or I've never seen him on a commercial or anything like that. He's just, if you, if you want to see him, you just go to Mad Tree and he's working. You know, it's not like he's a. He's a poster child or anything, if that makes sense. And he's sense. providing value to the company. Yeah, yeah, he does a heck of a job in a couple of different ways. You know, he started working um, at their pizza place uh, that's internal there, and then he got another job at another brewery, <laughs> 50 West. So, I mean, he's really contributing to the beer community. He hosted a, a night of, um, of um, a video game, like, tournament, uh, one, one brewery against another, right? So that adds value to a company. Hmm. Um, and, and so that's been our bent, which is, so if, if you have these people who society has very small imagination around, what, what do we do with these people? Oh, we, we send them to that building, you know, if you have those people, then what you need is the antidote is big imagination. So that's where we designed these projects and said, well, if the problem is this, this, this thing over here, then we've got to have a counterweight. And the best thing that we came up with was projects that had, of events and experiences that had never been imagined, never been done before. So brewing wow. beer and uh, having spoken word contests. and <laughs> Which is the same, actually. I mean, we just had an episode. I think it was the last episode about teenagers and um, unmotivated teens is what it addressed. And it was about, I, I think, the problem that a lot of parents face with unmotivated teens is a not a big enough imagination yeah. around how to harness their curiosity and their value. Yeah. We almost see teens as unvaluable, period. In fact, I was told like time and time again, I, we're pumping out babies left and right, okay, Kimmy and I are in our 20s, and they're like, we're just like, especially for some reason with the girls, and they're just like, wait till they're teenagers, you'll see. As if they're gonna be just these fucking like- Holy terrors. Yeah, terror, <laughs> hormone, ATM machine sucking, like gossips that just this is before iPhones and texting, but you know, they're just on social media and video games all day long. That's what we were told. Yeah. And that has not been our experience at all. Like my teen girls, my, all my teens fucking, they take pictures, beautiful pictures. They write poetry, they do art. And I'm not saying there's not challenges and shit, but our primary experience is not as like blood sucking parasites, but I think oftentimes if our only solution as parents is send them to school, are you getting good grades? Like, do you fit in? Is your behavior like five stars? Then my kids, just like 
many others, would be very low scoring. <laughs> they're, they're sniffing it out. They don't want to be a part of that. You know, that was, that was one of the things that really made me nervous about being a traditional um, kind of support to a person with a disability was, I was like, so I'm supposed to help them plug into this culture? The culture that wants them to only eat certain mashed potatoes or the culture that wants them to not see the end of the Reds game or whatever it is, you know, like it's not a cool culture to plug into. No, who wants to fucking climb that ladder? <laughs> Nobody wants Shit. to do that. And and so I couldn't succeed at that. Right. Let's invent something better. I mean, what you know, I guess if, if you're already being left out of everything, well, then, you know, it's time to invent your own box, essentially. You know, do you need another uh, drink here? Mm hmm. Okay, we got, um, this was a gift, Great Lakes Christmas Ale. Was it's, the person cool that gave it to you? It, it, Jamie uh, from Bellevue. Oh, okay. But we have others. We have your Grandma Gatewoods, and I have the bourbon upstairs. Let's go with Christmas okay. Ale. I got to pound mine first here. Hang on. <laughs> and guess what? It's the exact same ABV. All right. Uh, um... So, you told me about something years ago that stuck with me, which was, I believe, a study um, of um, something along the lines of people who had their picture taken by a disabled person yeah. was like lost popularity points. Cheers again. Well, it wasn't that specific to disability. Oh, okay. But it's some social science, and this is pretty tried and true, which is that we um, search out opportunities to enhance our image and our status. And we do this for a pretty simple reason. <laughs> the more status you have, the more opportunity for money, for sex, for power, for, you know, a big, huge, successful, comfortable life, right? Yeah. This is probably evolutionary. Pretty right? natural. Yeah, we get more food this way or something like that. So the way that we enhance our status is by being seen with the pretty people, by the, success, the success, successful people. This is why we hang out with people that we— Take selfies. Yeah, this I mean, these like are click, tagging people on Instagram. Clicks, yeah, exactly. Clicks in high school. Whatever it is that you think can enhance your image. Nobody wants to hang out with the quote-unquote losers, right? So then you ask, well, who? what makes somebody a loser? And it, it ends up being these things that make them stand out or be different. Maybe they don't look attractive. Maybe they— aren't successful academically or financially. Uh, maybe they're living on the streets. <laughs> maybe they don't smell good. Maybe they move slowly. Maybe they have now turned 80 and we just don't want them around because they're kind of a drag to have, you know? So, so hanging out with these people is costly. Yeah, on a socially. Level. Yeah, and it's not just people with disabilities, right? This is why we send away grandma and grandpa. <laughs> this is why we... Because old people. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is outside the, the norm, outside the typical. So it, it just doesn't increase our status, our freedom, our power to be around these people. So we've invented a way to turn it into an economy of sending them away. Wow. So what do you make of that? Or I mean, have you you've worked in this sector for how many years? 
25. And it's weird hanging out with you because, and I noticed this in your book, like you're the CEO or you were the CEO of this company. So these people arguably are your like, what is the word client? Mm -hmm. Okay. But a lot of these people you, you call your friends. Yeah, I mean, I, I did at the time. Now I've kind of reframed, which is that my my job when I'm when I'm doing my job the best that I can is to help them develop their own friends. Okay. Yeah. But over the years, you've built friendships with mm -hmm. disabled people. I mean, you tell these stories of they're like at your fucking birth and shit, or visiting <laughs> you at the hospital sure, and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. So, like, I mean, I know you got to protect your ass for legal reasons or be wise about it, but but you've you've taken selfies with these folks, sure. not to promote your organization. Like you've considered them peers, right? Have you seen blowback, or have you taken like social hits, or like how does it impact you in terms of like um, I don't know, less clout, or like what is the? No, I mean it. It doesn't impact me because I have the. I have the status of helper. So it's kind of like, oh, well, Tim, that's what he does. That's okay. part of his life, right? So I still get these social points for doing that kind of mm. work. And, um, but I, but I definitely notice that it's not the coolest work, you know? So it's harder to get funding for, it's harder to, um, to get people to participate in things. Like when we were doing art projects or spoken word nights or beer brewing, I would call up friends from high school and say, hey, you know, I need I need somebody who'd like to help do this project and you know a lot about that. And and I would get like radio silence. Whereas if I were doing it in Northside with all these cool people, <laughs> they'd, oh yeah, I'll be there, you know. So if you're like, yeah, if you're um, doing an event with a bunch of cool hipsters or tattooed, you know, yeah. whatever, bartenders or mm -hmm. whatever anything really mm -hmm. people would respond but they don't yeah it's harder it's harder so that's kind of the goal is to try to introduce people one one at a time to other people and then see if they click and if they can start to kind of get to know each other and then they have a long relationship where it doesn't matter if they're a little different or if they have a bad day or a good day or they can see the the need for the mashed potatoes on the birthday is just fine you know that's but. hard though huh <laughs> it's hard. i mean speaking from personal experience like i don't know what it is but i see someone in a wheelchair and i think i assume like and I, i'm just like telling you like my gut response i assume they're like less smart mm -hmm. which has no correlation to a wheelchair right but something about my the way I was raised in whatever circles. And I went to a school that had half kids that were like special needs. Mm -hmm. So maybe that was where it came from. I don't know. But I consider myself like pretty open-minded in some ways. But so I can't imagine if I see someone who has like a speech impediment or yeah. something, it takes longer. I mean, how do you sell that? Like, do you, do you have to convince people that it's like, worth it to give it a chance to overcome these like uh stereotypes they bring into these types of things yeah i mean i have a chapter in the book called there's no such thing as them mm. which is essentially just this idea that you were conditioned and so was i and so is everybody listening to this <laughs> to think of 
disability as a umbrella term that encompasses like you know mm-hmm. this huge part of the population when actually it's just Ben and Tim and Dave and <laughs> all these different people that have different lives and different family structures and different communities and different wow. interests and their personhood is unique right so that's the first thing is to try to get to that person's personhood my my friend from high school um, she has a daughter with a disability and she and I have been kind of like kicking around ideas recently. And, and she has this great term that she used for this. She, she calls it a humanity anchor. So because her daughter and people with disabilities are in danger of having people see them as them, then we have to really get good at giving and celebrating each person's unique identity. Yeah. Right? super specific yeah, just yeah. for that person wow just for ben just for tim man there's this uh, podcast i recently listened to um cammy insisted i listen to it shout out to cammy who's not here tonight by the way love you um, <laughs> um first po- first podcast no actually second podcast that she's never been on oh who was the other uh, guest was i think it just you by yourself Dove. oh okay so you're the you're the first non-family member to Me be on the fight Dove. together podcast yeah good job um, anyways, she is going through this like gender, um, what the fuck do you call it? Something or other. I don't know what to call it. Um, but she recommended this podcast to me. The title of the podcast uh, episode is called Decolonizing Gender. Mm-hmm. And the first 10 minutes, uh, the lady talks about what the word colonization even means. Because that was like super key to the whole discussion. And her kind of thing was colonization is like the label that you apply to something that is usually done by those with power. So you have like fucking Native American, um, American Indians. I I don't know what the proper term is nowadays, but the people who lived here before Columbus got here, right? And then Columbus comes here and is like, aha, we exist now. I discovered this. This is now America, which was a powerful thing to be able to state just with his words he kind of, or whatever movement came about because of him, almost assumed that the people that were here did not exist beforehand. Yeah. Um, and there, so that was colonization, but the colonization was the labeling itself. Yeah. And what the point that they made was the second that we assume someone's gender, like the second I say, you're a man. Okay, it seems pretty harmless, right? But what comes with that? is this whole preconceived notion, everything from your genitalia to the types of colors you wear to the types of activities you'd be interested in watching on TV or not. And it basically kills curiosity. And that was her kind of big thing. It wasn't to get rid of labels, which I think is a lot of the, um, maybe the easiest target for what the gender discussion is about right now. It's like, oh, what are you trying to do? Just get rid of the label. But it's more to spark curiosity yeah. and to ask, because once I assume that you're a guy, there's a lot of questions I'd no longer ask, right. which maybe you're not into football, you know, or trucks or being the leader of your household or whatever it is, um, making mad amounts of money. <laughs> um, and the opposite of that, which is if I say you're a man, then I would assume there's somebody correlating who can't be the leader of your household or can't make money or can't right so there's yeah the opposite (laughs) so i know that with the disabled community oftentimes when i hear of a label or can quickly observe one like a wheelchair more obvious physical features sometimes it like kills my curiosity Mm -hmm. maybe because 
I make assumptions. Maybe just because I assume it's going to be too too much damn work. Yeah. Or it's work. Maybe it's work I'm not comfortable with. I I actually have more tenderness toward just just from understanding all that I was kind of like um, conditioned to believe through this colonization, which is all lives in our minds, right? But I mean, I have some tenderness toward everybody in the world who gets trapped in this notion because it's it's not that they're actively trying to, you know, discriminate. It's that there's no capacity for understanding or knowing them, right? It's just impossible. So that's part you of the disabled people. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a disabled person, right? So, so, you know, the only thing you can do with them is go volunteer for their dance or <laughs> write a check so they can go stay at the building or whatever it is, you know. But if I could say, well, what would you do with Ben? Mm, wow. That's that opens up the the curiosity. Well, now I know. Because, well, what, who is Ben? Where does he live? What's he do? What's he into? Which I don't like it when people put me in a category. And they're like, oh, I hate YouTubers in Bellevue. As if that's all I am is a fucking YouTuber. Right. Or you a and hippie a bun- with long... And people are like, oh, right. this, those are the hippies on Barry. And by the way, YouTubers in Bellevue is a pretty big crowd. It's just you and a bunch of eighth graders, you know? Like, just so you know. <laughs> just <laughs> Well, and I have probably four of the eighth graders living in my house. <laughs> Yeah, that's an interesting, wow. So that's why we start with those really big identity imagination kind of projects is we're trying to kind of catalyze uh, some, some, some experience that will connect people to each other, right? So let's just say, um, for example, imagine there was a, a Wendell Berry reading night in Bellevue down at the, down at the darkness. darkness. I would be there in a heartbeat, right? And I bet that I would get along with everybody who showed up. Mm. So immediately by showing up to the Wendell Berry reading night, I can make some friends. I can say, oh, yeah, okay, what's your favorite book? What's your favorite poem? You know, maybe we want to help work at the community garden together, you know? So there's just, it's a shortcut, essentially, to love, if that makes sense. Mm. (laughs) You're trying to get So this, like, it's weird because... um... This category of disabled, it can come across as serving disabled people. Like, oh, we built a building for you. Mm-hmm. Go hang out in it. It's really great. There's like a padded playground. Yeah. But actually, it probably more serves, not even long term, but in terms of convenience, it probably serves those more around the disabled people to get rid of the disabled person. Essentially, I, I think that's... And I don't know if that's conscious or if that's just inherited assumptions, right? Which I is, would not guess it's conscious at all. It's it's that that's what it's simpler. Yeah, and that's what we've seen, right? So it, if all of a sudden somebody's walking doing handstands, you're gonna be like, "What the heck's going on with that person?" You know, it's just, if some, it's just we 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 walk the same path that has been paved before us, and that's what's been paved. So that's what we broke out of, and that was a lot of fun. <laughs> and, so are you and, sure was it all fun no it was horrible <laughs> it was it was really hard you know because all of a sudden i spent the first half of my career selling the old story of success which is building this massive organization yes and and trust me this is the best thing ever and you should feel good about yourself and i feel good about myself and all this stuff and having to go back on that and say whoops actually you know that that was 
not the best we could. I mean, do. my first memories of you and this organization are being invited to these fundraising dinners, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where I would I feel like I'd had to wear like a tie and shit. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, I don't think I actually wore a tie, but everyone yeah. else is wearing a tie. Yeah. And you had a fucking um, news news anchor hosting the night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're we're selling this hard, right? And that's not just us. This is an industry. This is nonprofits in general. This is big business. Yeah, it was, but it was the fancy schmancy of yeah. Cincinnati would show up to these. It was a fancy hotel with a catered meal, all yep. free. Yep. And uh, raffles and yeah. fancy stuff. So you spent the first half of your career building that. And then you go to all those people and you say, whoops, <laughs> guess what? We've been doing it all wrong. And we've got to figure out something new. And guess what? No one knows what exactly that is either. So I spent the second half of my career trying to figure out what that was. But this is all because you are convinced that even though you're helping these people with like a kind of a daycare type product, that the category itself does more harm than good in the long run. Yeah. Or correct that statement no i i i I think that uh chucking a label on somebody from birth that defines the rest of their life in a negative way is a huge mistake and it is not something that i want to perpetuate in the world so that's that's recently what we've been doing is working with families of kids with disabilities to help them think about their child outside of the label. So I don't want to be flippant about it. I think that now is one of the best times to be alive if you have a disability because you have more voice, you have more support. There are some structures that make life livable. In our history, we've done pretty horrible things um, to people with disabilities, babies with disabilities. And so I think that that's great. It's just that we're not even remotely close to where we could be, if that makes sense. And that's what I'm after. (laughs) Yeah. That's hard uh, for me to imagine, like what you're describing. Well, it is, but... why you'd write a whole book about it, I guess. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah, and and I think that, that... I think that my best effort has just been to say, let's keep talking about it. Um, Well, and what I've seen with you, and shit, I feel this myself, with like parenting and my religious background, is a lot of times for to, to get imagination for what the future holds, you don't have to be fucking brilliant. But if you've just experienced the pain of the previous way, then that's enough for some people to say, there's got to be a better way. But for those that haven't experienced that pain, they're like, what's the big deal? I'm sure the big buildings are great. But, you know, you say, I mean, you said very quickly that there's some horror stories about what the ways disabled people have been treated. I know that you have lists and lists dozens maybe hundreds or thousands of horror stories that you've experienced i mean you tell the fucking story of mashed potatoes 
and Reds games, but that's not. You've seen other things, yeah, of like the fallout of what these systems create. <clears throat> I've known people who were killed by their caregiver um, in a restraining hold for their quote unquote behavior. I've known people whose parents killed them and killed themselves. You know, I've known people that um, that have. Um, I mean, it's a story in my book. I I know um, people who have had no one speak at their eulogy. You know, no one even knew who they were, and I was at that funeral. <laughs> you know, and it's 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 just like these are like humans, human beings. Yeah, and I mean, we do every year on March 1st, it's called National Disability Day of Mourning, and we started a tradition, Bridget, Bridget uh, and I started a tradition going up to Orient, Ohio, which is just south of Columbus, and it is where um, it was an institution, which the history of asylums, essentially, is what people would know this as, right? An insane asylum or something like that is what people would mostly know it as. See that shit in, like, Batman. Yeah, and this is where all the disabled people were sent from 1860 to 1960 Holy in Ohio. Fuck. So that's, like, the cost of convenience. Yeah. Like, we want to be, like, you want the kid not crying in your grocery store. Yeah. You have to ship them off in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. And at one point in our society— the we way that we did. decided was the best was to send them to... This is like the stuff that Stephen King novels are based off of, is places like this. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this place is... Um, it's it's funny. Um, it, it, I mean, you can go visit. <laughs> it's a prison now. Literally, it's a prison. There are two prison campuses surrounded by razor wire. They shut the institution down in the 80s. And, um, and there's... There's a graveyard, um, and there's about a thousand headstones that just have a number on them, and those are the human beings with disabilities that died there without ever being named. No one knew who they were. You know, there's a dude. That sounds like a Schindler's List type stuff. Yeah, I mean that's that's. But I mean, like if you if you if you study history, parents were told by doctors. Leave your baby with the ward of the state and go home and tell everybody that the baby didn't survive childbirth wow. and um, have another baby. And that's what parents did, you know. So um, I came to see my programs as somewhat of a form of that distance, that social <laughs> social distancing, right, which was get them away from us. It's not shipping them off to asylum, but it's like a mini asylum. Essentially, yeah. So I saw the same thing. Was it's, it's, it had the same um, outcome? It wasn't the same form. It wasn't a farm in the middle of Ohio where everybody was sent and buried without a name. It was just mostly unknown socially through these programs and buildings. So you think in forty years we'll look back and be like embarrassed by the way we're treating disabled people like now? I hope not, because I, I don't. Again, I don't think that. It's, it's as horrific as it was, right? Uh, to me, it still has similar outcomes, which is I spend my whole life not, not being known by anybody and not having an opportunity to contribute to the world in a way that could be really beautiful, right? Um, so I don't think that there's... You, you, if I was getting extreme, I could say that's, <laughs> that's, that's exactly the same thing. 
But I do think that it's an evolution, right? I mean, the time we saw Walter Brueggemann and he said, well, if you believe that in the end life wins, then that's great. You just don't get to know where you are in the story. I just don't know where we are in that There's story. Progress. Yeah, I believe in that. How long ago? I mean, is this the type of place where they do a lobotomy? Mm-hmm. How long ago was that? I'll bet the last one was done in 1960s sometime. 40, like, 60 years ago. So like basically in in our lifetime, well, our parents' lifetime, there's yeah. like lobotomies being done. Yeah. Like they're cutting out a piece of someone's brain mm-hmm. because instead of having the curiosity to figure out what's going on, it's yeah. more convenient. Yeah. I mean, I tell the story in my book uh, about a guy that I knew that had no teeth. And he had no teeth because he lived at, at this place in Orient, Ohio. And he would bite his arm out of frustration. I mean, you look where you're living, right? Basically a prison. And so instead of understanding uh, his frustration with his life being stuck in this horrible place, they just took his teeth out. That was their solution, right? So, and I, I know that guy. <laughs> I mean, I took him to Reds games. I took him out to movies, and he was part of our, our programs. So, so that's kind of what drives me is knowing when, when I know each of these people and I know what amazing stories they have to offer, and, and I know they're knowable, and I know that they have care to give, then I just feel like not providing a conduit to that is like really at at best it's short-sighted at worst it's it's really bad how many disabled people are there out there like in our communities like what i mean i don't really see these people like around well or do i (laughs) you don't you don't because they're sitting in buildings like the one i had you know um and they're going to dinners with each other, not with you. And and they're not, you know. So I, I think there's a reason why you don't see them around. Um. So what can, like, what can someone like me do? I mean, what do you suggest to people not in the industry? Um, well... First, I, I guess you'd say, like, don't get in the industry, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. you spent the last half of your career trying to get out of your career in a way. I have people come to me all the time, and they come with all these new versions of the thing that I did, right? And They're like, I, we'll build it with shinier <laughs> right. shit. Better TVs, you know? And <laughs> We got and, flat screens. Yeah, wait, we got a PS5, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, well, it's still a PS5 and a dead end. So I just tell them, I say, look, you know, you don't understand what it's like to undo it. And so I would advise you never to start it. And and just, if you want, I'll teach you how to start it from the place where I stopped, right? So I think that that's a big ethos I have, which is help people make new mistakes <laughs> rather than the same old which ones. Is, which is what? Like, what are the best mistakes to be making right now? I mean, you don't know quite what somebody's into and you help them brew beer and it turns in turns out they were into poetry. Okay, that's a great mistake to make. At least we're not locking you away and never discovering that you cared about beer or poetry, you know. Um, but I, I just don't want people to make the mistakes of segregation, essentially. But Okay, so make it, like, simple. I'm, okay. at, I'm at the grocery store and I see a guy in a wheelchair. Well, actually, let me let me rephrase this. You see a guy in a wheelchair, 
what do you do? I make sure that I uh, make eye contact and say hello if that's what the business of the grocery store is. Uh, if that's how you are at the grocery store. Yeah. If you're not, if you're the kind of person that's like, I'm in and out, that's fine too, right? That's treating people like everybody else does. Um, but I would say natural. Um, I, I will say that Bridget and I have landed on the idea of building a life and a culture that is conducive to everyone being a part of it, <laughs> if that makes sense. So if you notice here in Bellevue, we've started the community garden, and the idea was, can we can we start something that will take the rest of our lives to grow? It has rhythms and cycles to it, and everyone is always welcome, right? There's no gates, there's no fences, there's no rules. Um, it's the same thing we started with a potluck, which is like monthly potluck where people can just break bread together, and it doesn't matter who shows up, right? It's not a service project to feed hungry people. If hungry people show up, that's a really great thing. <laughs> um, so that's a huge difference. Um, okay, as a potluck fan, mm-hmm. it's a really big difference um, hosting a meal for for someone than creating an event where everyone brings food. Because... There's pros. I mean, it can be very nice to put on a fancy dinner. We've done our fair share of that. And I've loved every one of them. You've been to a few. (laughs) But what it says from the outset is we are the givers. We are the haves. You're the have not. We're the the, um, wealthy, so to speak, and you are the benefactor. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of a power thing there, which gets a little bit. With friends, it gets, um, it becomes fine when it's reversed and reciprocated because you host then we go to your place Mm -hmm. and then you do it and it's like okay great we're both equals in this relationship but with disabled people um as an example or anyone for that matter even low-income people when when i'm constantly inviting them over it feels nice on one level it's like okay i'm doing a good job but it's also this constant reminder of who i am what category I'm in and what category they're in. They're going to be further stuck in. Yeah. And their use of you, your use of them as a tool. Right. And that was kind of my point with the summer camp story. What do you mean by that? What I mean was when I went to summer camp, I used people with disabilities as a tool to feel good about myself. To get that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so, and, and so if we help people in, in that sense, and we're not really looking at our motivations, we could easily fall into the trap of helping people so that we elevate our own status, right? Which is like, um, shit, this is like the, um, in Christian world, like the mission trip is like so fucking about this. There's an Instagram account called Barbie Savior, and it shows this white Barbie with all these black kids. Yep. And she's like, yep. I adopted another orphan today. Yep. And it's like, you know, a lot of people go on mission trips. Yep. Not, I don't want to be shallow and to say it's for Instagram. But they do it to feel like they're saving someone. Well, in, in our world, we actually study that aspect because people with disabilities get used as an object of God points, essentially, right? So if I go volunteer for the Jesus prom and I'm nice to people which with is a disabilities, real which is a real thing, <laughs> I and I'm nice you. to people with disabilities one night out of the year, but I don't even talk to anybody with a disability for the next 364 days— 
then I get to take the picture of myself doing it. I get to say, oh, dear God, please, th thank you for not wow. making me disabled, and thank you for giving me the blessings to help these poor people, right? So I'm essentially, again, using people as objects. I'm consuming them. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm using them for my own, my, own, my own status, my own good, my own wellness. How is this different? Um, I, I mean... I'm familiar with your faith background a bit. We've talked, but how is it? How does this differ or similar to how you think Jesus operated, like from like Bible stories? Well, it's a little bit complicated because Jesus, you know, from what I understand, and you would beat me in a in a Bible quoting contest. Let's do it right now. <laughs> I want to beat you. But he definitely <laughs> hung out with people and. In a, in a in a pretty uh, typical way and in a pretty uh, respectful way there were a few moments though where he you know he cured the guy uh, from with his with blind who was blind by rubbing mud in his eye and the quote I can't remember but it was something about you know um, almost healing him from you know sins of parents and stuff mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. so there's some weird things that that make me think I don't know if that's exactly Jesus's quote because <laughs> I really, you know, it, it was pretty. That would have been pretty exploitative on his part <laughs> to be using a people person. as object lessons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So, um, but I, but I think that's the thread that we're chasing when we go on the mission trip or work at the nonprofit and hmm. try to help people is, is we're trying to prove that we are Christ-like, which is another form of chastened status, right? So if I can be seen as closer to Jesus, then I can also mm. raise my mm. status. He's, he's the ultimate cool kid, in essentially, yeah. right? What I find fascinating uh, from some of the Jesus stories, um, which I was raised with a lot, is... Um, that a lot of these people that were rejected by society, like uh, prostitutes, which was a much bigger deal then than it is now, I think. Maybe not, but... Um, was that they seemed like they were attracted to him as a person and not afraid. Mm -hmm. And I guess one of the things I wonder is, like, how can we live a life that's where we attract people? Yeah. Not just rich people, not just status seekers. I mean, I know at one point in my life, I, at this point where I'm working for Epiphia, making a million dollars a year, I was getting, and you knew me in this time period, but I was getting phone calls up the fucking wazoo. Appointment, I was booked. I mean, every it felt like every dude in the city wanted to meet with me to pick my brain on some shit, you know, some idea, pitch me on their business thing. And it felt really good at the time. But it was a certain type of person that was like always banging down my door. And then we kind of got kicked out of the church thing. I, I left the business thing and guess like my phone calls. I got like, now I get like virtually zero phone calls. Yeah. yeah. And it's fascinating to me. Like, cause I'm the same person. In fact, I consider myself a more evolved person, but I can see now the types of people that were attracted to me, like what they were attracted to. Yep. And I don't know. I don't want to camp out on that thought too much, but there's a there's a human aspect that is a that where humans are attracted i mean like certain animals cats are attracted to people dogs are attracted to certain people humans are attracted to certain people um and then there's like the systems that we play where we're taught 
oh, look at someone's Insta- Instagram follower account. And then we, we learn to be attracted to that. Yep. It doesn't seem like a very natural thing, but, and then probably disabled people aren't very good at that game. Right. And then, you know, anyways, I wonder what it would look like to live a life that's attractive, both to children. Yep. I mean, that's the other story you hear about yeah. Jesus is like kids seem to dig him. Yeah. And like didn't, weren't afraid of him. I mean, that's been our story. When we started studying all this, we realized that the other side of the coin wasn't just, you know, the story of helping a person with a disability live their best life or reinvent their identity away from disability towards something interesting. The other side of that coin was to build the kind of culture and to live the kind of culture where that was even possible, right? And that, we, I remember when we started learning about this, we realized that mostly our communities, our, our neighborhoods, I, mean, I want to use the term neighborhoods, right? Because it's different from communities. Everybody's community, community, community. But neighborhoods were kind of disintegrating. We're not talking to each other, right? And we were living that life. Like at the time when, when I started rethinking this stuff, I knew two people on my block. Now you know me. How many people you think I know on my block now? Everyone. Right? Like we, there was a house fire three weeks ago, and I was out there, and we're talking to everybody, and I knew exactly whose house that was. And Cammy I told was me, like, Cammy was like, we saw the fire truck, and Cammy's like, is that Tim's? Should we text him? And I'm like, it's not Tim's, but he knows who it is. <laughs> yeah, and I'm calling the neighbor. I'm like, call. She knows whose house, whose sister's house, it, and she's calling. I mean, we we just we know each other now, and I think that that's what's interesting is we've we've kind of chosen a discipline of. How do you know the people that are literally around you? Which is cool because we live a block away from each other, you know? But otherwise, I don't have much interest in figuring out how to know all the people that are like me because we have the same social status. I'm more interested in the people that live on my block. Mm. I feel like I'm safer. I feel like I have a better life. I feel like... I know diverse people and different people from me. Um, well, we live in a low-income area. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, to rewind 10 years when you said that two pe- you knew two people, and I'm assuming, therefore, two people knew you on your block, it kind of speaks to probably how safe you felt to low-income people at that time and the way that you've shifted your values, which is very heavily covered in the book. Yeah. And that idea of localism, yeah. which the book is not about localism, but it's fascinating to me how you came upon that as a solution. Yeah. 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 I don't know if people felt safer around me or not, but they definitely felt known because I actually started talking to them <laughs> yeah. versus just saying, well, you're not part of the funding mechanism or you're not part of my you know, friend circle, which was defined differently than where I lived. So I think that's what's interesting is I know people. They know me. We have these real experiences together, shoveling each other's sidewalks and, you know, having cornhole tournaments and, um, you know, I had a neighbor at Halloween. He, he, I hadn't talked to him in forever, and he walks over with two little shots of whiskey, and we sat there and handed out candy with bourbon, you know? I mean, that's, that's a real block, you know? It's not just talking to people that you never or talking to people from high school that you don't live around or trying to sell people on things or, or other ceos mm-hmm. yeah all right um uh your book yep when when is it coming this your book release date has been the bane of my existence <laughs> and i don't want to put any more pressure on 
<laughs> but fucking a. When 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 can people keep an eye out for this thing if they're interested in learning more about this perspective? I hope this year. Okay. I mean, twenty twenty two. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is there a way? Is there um, a play uh, a place to go to get an announcement about that? No. Yeah. <laughs> I I did reserve a um, website. Um, but I don't even know if it'll be released on that or how we're, we're still working on all that. Okay. You know? So I never, ever, ever do this, but I'm going to do this this one time. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask people to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. F- push that fucking subscribe button, which I never ask you to do. You know that people, <laughs> because when the book comes out, I'm going to ask you back on. Okay. And I'm going to have you, I'm going to interview you again about the book. We'll drink some more beer and smoke another cigar. And people can um, keep up to date uh, that way. Do you have anything else, like uh, the title of the book or anything else you want to tell anyone? Or No, I, I mean, I think that, um, I think what I would say is I am appreciative of, and I, I mean, I, I really do mean this, your all's story, even the parts <laughs> that you would have to sit down in a chair and say, what was that about for you? <laughs> you know, like the parts that are hurtful now, that still informed a lot for me. Like I was, I felt like it was a privilege to watch y'all wrestle with what intergenerational living was like and have to plan for how would I help my parents live in a place that isn't run by a bunch of minimum wage people that are half checked out. Um, That was always an inspiration to me in how to learn about inclusion of the other. And, um, your all's evolution to expand that inclusion has been awesome. And we've had some evolution. Shit, the story <laughs> of this uh of this yeah. cup over the last month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was there for that night. <laughs> oh my gosh. I got a I got a gift for you. Mm-hmm. Um which is also promotion because I try and sell these hats every damn week and I don't think I've even sold one, but I, 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 I designed one. these hats, which is Hike Your Own Hike, but this is not the one I'm going to give you. Okay. This is the one I'm going to give you. Compliance skills. <laughs> which I feel like you should not wear because I think you already live this like too much to a T. Like this more, might take us over the edge. More than me, but I feel like you will find a good um, use or place for that. <laughs> <laughs> or shit, wear it. You know, I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> but uh, you've epitomized uh, that ethos to me uh, in sticking it to the man in all the right ways uh, and some wrong ways. But <laughs> uh, right. but you got to do both sometimes. Anyways, cool. Anything else on your side? No, go Bellevue. Absolutely. Great place to live. Oh, wrong button. Thank you for listening to Fight for Together. We'll see you next time.